Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. With the backdrop of our culture and society, we see that we live in a confusing time. That sex and sexuality has been misrepresented to us by Hollywood, by the industries, by um, even our experiences. Sex is, ha, and sexuality has been confused in our culture in our day and age by, um, by, by really giving ourselves permission to engage in anything that feels right because that seems to be the philosophy of our day that we are driven by our desires. Um, we're driven by our senses. We're driven by whatever feels Good, and that sent, tends to be the the compass of our of our time um, in this day and age. Um, so, recognizing that there's a culture and society that that confuses it, that misrepresents it, that um, all of these things, we wanted to challenge culture and challenge our our way of interacting with culture by teaching through the scripture. And so, we've been teaching over uh, the last few months or two months or so through the Song of Songs and looking at what the Bible has to say about sexuality, about singleness, about love and relationships and marriage and spirituality. And clearly, the Bible has a lot to say. Would you agree? Over the last few weeks, it's clear to us that uh, a 3,000-year-old poem is relevant to us today. And so, we've just been looking at what God has intended for us, what God has intended for for us in sexuality, in relationships, and what he designed for us. And um, so we, we've done those, those two things. We've challenged culture, and we've introduced what hopefully many of you have discovered, that the Bible has a lot to say about sex and sexuality. Um, but also throughout the last few weeks, I, I've heard a number of stories, amazing God stories, that in the midst of this very... Um, controversial or, or insightful to- topic and series, um, I've heard amazingly redemptive stories. There are men in here that have been struggling with pornography most of their life, and because of the discussion here, they have chosen to pursue a life of holiness and purity, changing their behaviors and patterns and seeing freedom for the first time in something they thought they would live with for the rest of their life. I've seen, I've heard of married couples here that have watched their relationship diminish in any type of, 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 uh, of sexual pleasure or joy found in their relationship. They've just kind of carried on their life as friends in the midst of, of jobs and, and kids. And, and because of this series, they recognize that, that sexuality is something to fight for. That God will honor them in their, desi- their, their desire for, for intimate relationship when we talked about the three different loves. I've also heard of dating couples in this, re- in this room that have said oh, we were sleeping together and because of this, we're choosing to live a life of purity. We're no longer gonna do that and God is gonna restore our purity and he has been restoring their purity and their desire for intimacy to wait for marriage. These are all incredible stories truly of God doing what we hope to see, but also in the midst of all of that, what I've seen over and over again in the conversations of of whether it was restoration or just plain out or straight out struggles is that in this room, we are full of pain and brokenness. That so many of us are living lives as damaged goods. The way we look at ourselves in the mirror full of shame and disappointment because culture has said we don't measure up. 
or whether it's that you still live with these habits of self-destruction and patterns of sin in a relationship or single, and you're wondering if that's how it's going to be for the rest of your life, and you live with this this weight and baggage over your life, or or in the midst of this conversation, I've received email after email of people that have had their sexuality robbed from them at a young age. And rape and molestation has been the story, the dominant story of sexuality in your life. And as, we, as I've talked and Bill's talked, it's just this reminder of all of that baggage that you carry um, as you walk through life. Even as a follower of Jesus, it's th- that story of your past has simply defined not just your present, but your hope for the future. And so I just want to say, let's just recognize this morning that we sit in a crowd full of loving beautiful people that are all broken and hurting. And if we could just allow our defenses, our walls to be taken down this morning, I feel like God might do something unique this morning as we come to a close. So we're going to finish our series, um, and I'm going to touch briefly in the Song of Songs, but this morning I simply want to remind us of the mystery and the connection between spirituality and sexuality. And so if you have a Bible, go to Exodus. Otherwise, just sit and listen as this, this gets up so we can just be present with the text. But Exodus chapter, um, we're going to start in chapter 19. Um, and I just want to give you the third reason of why I, I really wanted to do this series. It was simply this. In the midst of all these stories, um, I knew and I felt, and Bill and I, as we discussed, that we wanted to see liberation within our community. We wanted to see at the garden freedom from all of those things that have defined us. Freedom from shame, freedom from pain, freedom from the past, freedom to live lives of purity and holiness in the midst of a culture that's teaching everything else. And so our hope was to see um, our community come to a place of of lightness and joy and freedom. So uh, Exodus. Now, before I jump in, I just want to give you the quick story of Exodus. So Exodus is really a defining book in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Old Testament. But really, it's where the the story of God takes off. And in Exodus, the story begins with the children of Israel enslaved to Egypt. They were a nation of slaves. And for hundreds of years, the chosen people of God lived under the oppression of Pharaoh. And they cry out to, to God in their oppression. And the story of God begins, or the story of Exodus begins with a nation enslaved, calling out to God, and God is nowhere to be found. And the story picks up, and God says, I hear the cry of my people. And God begins to work in human history to redeem the nation of Israel. And we see that he sends a man named Moses. And Moses is played by Charlton Heston, of course, is the man who comes to redeem uh, and free the nation of Israel out of the oppressors of Egypt. But but God in chapter 6 of Exodus makes four promises. And I I think it's hard for us to capture the story. But I just want you for a minute to put yourself in the story of God, in the story of Exodus, story of a nation in slavery. Slavery is inhumane. You're treated as property. Israelites, they they had to make bricks seven days a week. Um, They were seen as property, and they were beaten, and they were, some of them were were shackled. I mean, just imagine what it would like, what, what it would be like to live in constant oppression and slavery, treated like a piece of property. And, and for me, recently, I saw the movie 12 Years a Slave. Amazing film. 
uh, really powerful storytelling. It's absolutely, I mean, I think I cried most of the time with my wife and I, but there's a part in the story, and I don't want to give it away, but it's based on uh, true events, obviously, in the story of a man named Solomon, Solomon Northup. And there's a part where he, he's a free man in New York, and he is, um, he is taken captive and put into slavery. He has a family in New York, and he's treated as a slave, and he survives cruelty and punishment. And it's just one thing after another of this man being mistreated, but also just seeing the effects of slavery in the film is absolutely horrible. And he's given a slave named Platt. And for 12 years, he lives as a slave as his family's free. And he's reminded of uh, his freedom, but he tries to survive and not die. But also, he tries to keep his dignity when he's treated like a piece of property, beaten, humiliated over and over again. And it gets to the point in the film um, in the, near the end where he actually is liberated. It's a, one of the true stories of, one of the few stories of a man who was t- taken captive and given his freedom. And there's a part where he's working in the fields and a man that knew him as Solomon sees him. And the sheriff comes up and he says, is there a slave uh, by the name of Platt? And he's like, I'm here. He's like, do you have any other name other than Platt? And he says, no, I have no other name until he sees This man that knew him, the first time he ever had a sense of hope. And as soon as he sees him, he remembers his identity. And he says, I'm Solomon Northup. He throws down his tools and walks to the man and grabs him because all of a sudden he remembered he was not Platt. He was not a slave. And so this nation of slaves is in Egypt. And God speaks over a nation that has been, for hundreds of years, given an identity of slavery. And God says to them in Exodus 6, he says, four promises. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And I will bring you to me. He brings four promises to a nation of slaves and says, I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And I will bring you to me. And this, these four promises become institutionalized in the Passover supper. And we read about the four different cups of wine that the Jewish community would drink during Passover or a Seder meal. It's the same wine that Jesus drinks the night before he's betrayed, and he says, this is my cup. This is, uh, this is my, my blood. And, and it's, the, it's the third cup of redemption that he symbolically reorients the entire Jewish religion to Christianity in that moment, redefining the Exodus story. That's a side note. The point is there are four promises spoken over the Israelites, and they become institutionalized. Now, let's keep going in the story. I just want to point that out because it's important. Um, because these promises become a reminder of identity and mission and purpose of who they were. Exodus 19, the Israelites are freed by this powerful God and God demonstrates his power. He, 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 he sends plagues. He kills the firstborn, and he, he parts the Red Sea with power and wonder and signs. God brings this uh, nation of slaves to this mountain. And in verse 5 of chapter 19, he says, he says to them, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So a nation of slaves, a nation of brickmakers, a nation that found their identity in what they produced for their masters and owners. God says, of all the nations, you will be for me a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. A priest is a mediator. A priest is someone that represents God to the rest of the community and represents the community to God. He stands on behalf or she stands on behalf of the community and for God. A nation, a kingdom of priests. I mean, 
They're, they're a kingdom of brick makers. A holy nation. The word holy means to be set apart. And set apart from all the other nations, but not just set apart for themselves, but set apart to put on display for the rest of the world that there is a God based on how these people live. And so in Exodus 19, God takes a nation of slaves and he sets them apart, gives them a new identity, speaks over them their identity and gives them a purpose. Are you with me? So in Exodus 19, um, the Israelites are now freed and the story continues. He gives them the Ten Commandments and um, eventually... um, what happens is they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness. And, and in the wilderness, apparently it's so bad that they want to go back to slavery. How bad was it really for people to want to go back from being free to being slaves? I mean, we can all relate to this. Set free from sinful desires and pleasures and pain, knowing that it's imprisoned us. And yet sometimes we're just longing to go back to the very thing that holds us captive. It's our story too. And so in Exodus, what God does is in the midst of this wilderness, remember, he shows himself as a God of power, as a distant God who sends plagues, as a God who who comes with fire and smoke and thunder and earthquake and and lightning. And then he says this in in Exodus 25, and and this is gonna tie all back into Song of Songs in just a moment, but stay with me as we talk through this. Exodus 25, um, it says in verse one, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering to me from anyone whose hearts prompt them to give. Skip down to verse 8. So he's preparing this offering. He says, then, it's basically after they, they worship, let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, basically a, a traveling tent, and all, all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God says to this nation, if you obey my commandments, you will be this. And, and in this whole dynamic, in this, this setting of the stage, it's as if God, um, the Israelites will think that God is marrying them. The language that's used in the covenant is a, is a covenantal marriage be, between God and the Israelites. And it's like, it's like a marriage relationship. But he does something significant in Exodus 25. You see, he says um, that he's going to dwell with them. He's going to tabernacle among them. And so God, at this point, remember the story, it begins with God being distant and the nation of Israel being um, enslaved to Egypt, and then the story comes, up, comes down, and God gives them a new identity. You're going to represent me on earth. And, and then they, they're, they're arguing. They want to go back to slavery, and God says, I'm going to dwell among you. And he, he says, construct this tabernacle. And, and in this tabernacle, which he gives, if you've read Exodus, there's a, there are plenty of chapter, chapters describing what this tent is supposed to look like. I mean, God is, is clearly into the details of the tent. Um, but as they go on, he says, I'm going to dwell among you. Now, this is significant. Go to Exodus 40. We're going we're gonna to talk about why this is significant. In verse 34, so they build the tabernacle. In verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So they're gathering, and the cloud of God covered the tent meeting. And the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. In other words, so the presence of God would be the key characteristic that defined the nation of Israel. God wasn't some, isn't some distant God. He comes to dwell among this nation that is, that's no longer slaved, enslaved, but is free. And he says, build a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, the presence of God rested with the people of God. And the presence, is, they, they have to make a word for it. And the word for this is Shekinah. And, and Shekinah is, is this word that describes um, God's holiness and radiance. Um, it describes God's, God's purity and truth and light and, and righteousness. And so we have this powerful illustration that it's this weighty presence of God that dwells with the people of Israel. And it is the defining image of the Jewish people. It's not just that they live by the law. It's that the presence of God went with them wherever they went. That's what separated the nation of Israel from everything else and everyone else. Are you with me? So we see that the presence of God rests in the tabernacle. Now the story of Israel con continues. And stay with me. And they eventually, they get a city called Jerusalem. They get the promised land. And they're given a, uh, uh, um, a uh, they build a temple. And Solomon builds his temple. And, and he consecrates his temple in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in verse 10, the cloud of the Lord, the, the Shekinah glory comes again and fills the temple of the Lord. And this time it's permanent. And the presence of the God is once again with the people, but this time in a permanent place. And God dwells among his people. His presence is the key uh, characteristic for the people of God wherever they go. And his presence is a reminder of their purpose and mission to the world. Are you with me? And the story of Israel, the story of Exodus begins in slavery. God is nowhere to be found. And the Exodus ends with God dwelling with his people as they're free. And then they get the temple, and God puts himself in the temple and becomes a permanent resident with the people of God. And we know that the story says that if they obey his commandments, and what happens? Do they obey? No. And God sends them into exile, and the temple is destroyed, and the presence of God is lifted. The key characteristic that defined the Israelites is gone as they go once again into exile, living under foreign rules, rulers. And then prophets emerge. In Isaiah chapter 4, if you have a Bible, you can go there. It's on the screen. Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah begins to paint a picture of what it will be like in the future. When God acts in human history again, there was this um, there's, there was this longing for God to do a new work, and it's it's that God would one day send a messenger, a servant. God would one day um, in, in what was called the age to come, or on that day that you see all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets began to paint a picture of what they saw that God would act in human history and once again be faithful to His promises and re redeem and rescue and take care and bring to Himself the nation of Israel, but not just the nation of Israel, for all people. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, Isaiah says, in that day the branch of the Lord will be fruitful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. They were in exile, 
And verse five says this, then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flaming fire by night. He's talking about the future of what will happen. Remember that the the presence of God, the glory of God rested only in the tabernacle and only in the temple. And he says this, so Isaiah says, over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. Isaiah chapter four says it's not just gonna rest in the temple. It will be over all the people of God. It will one day be like a canopy over the people of God. And so as they rebuilt the temple, the presence of God did not manifest itself like it did in the past, but they knew they longed, the people of God longed for God's presence to rest with with his people once again. And, And it was so significant that the Jewish community began to construct canopies as a symbol of God's presence and glory over sacred moments in life. And so maybe some, some of you have seen these before, but this is called a hoopah. Say it with me, hoopah. <laughs> a hoopah is constructed. It's basically a prayer shawl with four posts. And what the Jewish community would do is that in the most sacred moments of, of their times, in festivals, they would bring out these hoopahs, and, and whoever was standing under them, uh, it would represent God's presence and blessing and, and, and glory over and with them. It became a symbol of what, it was to, what was expected to come. But it also became a symbol of what was significant to the Jewish community, that God's presence was with them. Are you with me? So by the time Jesus comes around in the first century, um, there were all sorts of traditions built around the hoopas, and mainly that the hoopa was designed for wedding ceremonies. And so you would have a, a, a sort of first century wedding would, would be totally different than what we're expecting today. First of all, it was a year-long betrothal period. What the, what the bride or the groom would do is the groom would bring a cup to his hopeful bride and offer a cup to her. And if she accepted it, she would drink the cup. If she didn't want to get married, she would reject the cup. All of this illustration and imagery from um, bridal imagery is used by Jesus to describe his love for the church, to describe his ministry, and also to to describe uh, the second coming and what it will be like. So what would happen in this season in the wedding ceremony is that um, if if the bride said yes, then the husband would say, or the future, the bride um, groom, excuse me, the groom would say, okay, um, I'm going to build a room onto my father's house. And literally, he would spend a year adding a a room to his dad's house. And what would happen is as he's building it, the father would be the one to discern and decide when to give the groom the green light to go collect his bride-to-be in the Jewish tradition. And so when Jesus says, um, I'm, I'm preparing room, or there are many rooms in my father's house, he's using this imagery from what was a tradition in his day. Um, and, and the, the, the uh, father's, uh, sorry, the father of the groom would be the only one to say, it's now time for you to collect your bride. And so when Jesus says, only the father knows the times and dates, he's using bridal language to describe something far more significant than just, you know, Jesus doesn't know. He's using something that they understood in the first century. So what would happen is, is his, uh, the dad would say, all right, go get your, go get your bride. And the, the groom would grab all of his friends and go dancing down the street, making a ruckus, looking for a window that had a candle that was always lit. 
because the bride-to-be would wait in expectation for her bridegroom to come and collect her. Does that sound familiar? Are you with me? All this great illustration imagery that we pull from the New Testament, if we look into the tradition of the the Jewish community, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It helps us understand what's going on. So, then the, the groom would grab his bride and they would go and have a wedding ceremony. And I think it's only fair to illustrate this point if I brought my wife up here. So can I bring, come on, girl. She had no idea. Come on. Let's give her a round of applause. Nine and a half weeks, nine and a half months pregnant. All right. So this is a hoopah. Come on, baby. Everyone, come on. Look, let's give her a round of applause. Nice and pregnant. Okay, so we would, if we were getting married, um, she wouldn't have my baby yet, hopefully. (laughs) But we would stand under here, we would hold our hands, and we would say the I do's in the traditional Jewish sense, you are so beautiful. I'm so glad to be married. Yes, will you, blah, 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 I do. They say I do. Now, in, so what does this represent? That God's blessing and presence rests on this couple as they say these vows. But in the Jewish tradition, you weren't married until you consummated your marriage. We're not going to do that right now. So uh, clearly we already did, but thank you so much. Um, you did a great job. You look beautiful. Now, so remember, they, they, they brought the hoopah into the significant part and a significant rem- as a significant reminder of God's presence and glory resting on the couple. Now, so because it was so ingrained that there was a connection between, between two becoming one, that it wasn't just about your vows made, but it was your sexual intercourse. That marriage and sex went hand in hand, and many times some of the laws in the Old Testament are very clear that uh, without sex, there's no marriage. Because there's something mysterious about the sexual act of two becoming one. Now, um, so they, what would happen immediately after the vows in the, in the first century is that the, uh, the guy, um, actually, let's read Song of Songs. So what would happen is they would, they would uh, exchange their vows, and then they would immediately be ushered into the bridal suite or the bridal chambers or the room that the man was building for the past year. And in, in Song, Song of Songs chapter 1, she says this to, his, uh, to her man, Take me away, you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And that is a direct reference to what happens on the wedding night. Now, in the first century, the Hebrews believed that when two virgins on their wedding day made love, the Spirit of God hovered over them and delighted with them, rejoiced with them, and celebrated with them. They believed God was and still is a central figure in the union of two becoming one. So they would bring the hoopah into their bridal chambers, over the bed, and they would get married. (laughs) Because God delights and participates in the union of two becoming one and celebrates that intimacy. And what the Jewish community understood is that what happened under the hoopah was exclusive. That what happened under here between a man and a woman was exclusive for them and God alone. And so they brought it, they would bring the hoopah into the bridal suite and then they would do their thing. And if you were a friend of the bride and groom, you would wait outside and the wedding would be, the ceremony would be put on pause until you opened the door and said, all right, it's game time. (laughs) Or whatever the first century equivalent was. I don't think it was hashtag game time, but um, 
But from that point on, the, the, the friends of the groom would announce to the, the gathered masses, the two have become one, and they would celebrate, they would drink wine, they would dance, and they would party for seven days. For seven days they would party. And if you were a friend of the bride or a friend of the groom, you for seven days would walk around carrying a post over the bride and groom, symbolizing the blessing and favor and presence of God on their union. It wasn't just a quick I do and some toasts. It was far more symbolic than that. And so the Shekinah glory was symbolized in marriage. If you go to Hebrews chapter 13, the Jewish writer writing to a Jewish community in Hebrews 13 has a significant point he makes. Hebrews chapter 13 um, says this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. The, the phrase marriage bed is the same phrase that we get with bridal chambers. Um, and the image of the bridal chambers is what happens on that first night with the hoopah being present in that act of union. And, and listen to what this writer says. So he says, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Remember when we talked about the connection of sex, that it's not just damaging when it's outside of what God intended to you, but it's, it's damaging to the other person that our souls are joined together and literally ripped apart. And the author of Hebrews makes the point that sexual immorality, adultery, is not just sin against the person or the husband that you're cheating on. It's against God. Why? Because God's present in the union of marriage. And there's a connection, a mysterious connection between our spirituality and our sexuality. That sex is far greater than the physical act with one another. That God is in it. And his presence, remember, is a reminder of our identity and purpose. So the hoopah represents all of those things. And it's symbolic of God's presence um, resting over the people of God. And question I have, or really I just want to discuss this, is as we've been discussing the last few months, sex, love, and God, um, and we've tried to paint the picture of what God intended for us, and as I've already alluded to, clearly most of us haven't experienced all that God had intended for us. But as I started out, most of us are living lives that are broken. And when we talk about our sexuality, we're talking about brokenness there. We're talking about shame and painful reminders of stories of our past, convicting calls of our behaviors being called out, talking about the brokenness within our marriage. That's so, even as you sit there with your partner, recognizing that you've blown it, and you walk around with the, the sense of disappointment. My question, though, is this. How do we get back to what God intended? As the people of God, is it just we're broken and we keep going that way? Or how do, or is there another way? So how do we get back to what God intended? And I want to answer that and conclude with 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's writing to the church, and he says, and listen to the language he uses. But you are a chosen people, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Does that sound familiar? He takes the identity and purpose of Israel and applies it to the church. 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you, have not re- you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. And that specific text is dealing with sexuality as well, uh, sexual sin. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Peter borrows this language from Exodus, and what he does is declares who you are as the church. How do we get back to what God intended? First, we have to recognize that in this whole conversation, what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that God did something in history and we don't have to do anything for it except receive it. And the gospel throughout the scriptures is this provocative statement that God has done something so that you don't have to. And oftentimes in our churches, even as we talk about this, the temptation is to say, well, I have to get my act together now to come to God. Or I have to earn, I have to get, clean up my act so that God will love me more. And the gospel is declared over and over again by Paul. He writes to Ephesians and says, you are the saints. You are holy people. You have been, you've been power washed from the inside out. He says in Romans that nothing can separate you from God's love. That there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he says, your life, think of your life as it is now, drenched with addiction, drenched with affairs, drenched with improper sexuality, he says that life has been hidden in Christ. The gospel is what's been done for us. How do we get back to God? How do we live the way God intended us to live? Well, the first part is to recognize that God's done everything for us and receive it. But you say, okay, I've heard this. I'm still struggling. I'm addicted to porn, and it's not going to change, and all of this stuff, oh, you know, I have these sinful behaviors. What do I do with that? Or how do we get back to allowing God to redefine our relationship when, when I've allowed all these other things to come in under the hoopah in our relationship? How do I, how do I allow God to give me a desire for, for, my, for my wife when I'm just, I look at all these other women all the time? Uh, or, or if you're single and you've allowed sexuality to, to be defined as your primary identity, you know, where, where you just continue to give yourself because that's how you've navigated life or, or stuff has harmed you. You've been abused in the past and you've allowed that to shape your current relationships how how do you how do you go back to what God intended when we live so often in the brokenness of our lives I'm going to share one story of how one girl explained it who's in our church a brave young woman early in the series emailed me she's 18 years old and she was willing to share her story and she says she believes that God can heal anyone because of her story. And I thought I'd just share this, some of the emails. She, 
she, um, at eight years old, began to be sexually abused by her cousin and uh, began to uh, see that as a continual pattern in her life. Um, she didn't think about telling anyone because he was older than her and uh, thought that she would get in trouble and that eventually she developed the mindset that this was her fault, that being abused by a family member was what happens to you. The abuse went on, and eventually, as the abuse went on, she ended up going to church, and it just so happened that her cousin and other cousin were leaders in the church. And now both of them continue to abuse her to the age of about 14. Now, this abuse developed all sorts of patterns in her life. Avoidance, she didn't want to make attention, bring attention to herself, because she thought if she brought attention to herself in any circumstance, she would be hurt by someone. She began to think that, um, she began to develop walls of self-protection, preservation, and hide her sexuality. Um, and uh, her abuse caused her to think that she had no value in life and she wasn't good enough. And that it was her fault, especially when she related it to the leaders of the church. She said, I thought I was so ugly sometimes I could feel the dirt of what happened. As if you could actually see it on me in the form of dark spots on my skin. I didn't feel any worth. I didn't feel any worth. And I always asked God, why? This defined her reality. And in many people, it takes years and years and therapy and seasons of time to bring any type of healing to something so traumatic. And uh, God began to work in her heart, she said, and she uh, did not want to allow her abuse to define her. And um, it did begin to shadow every part of her life, she said. But then God spoke to her, and through a brave act of courageousness, God, uh, she spoke with her abusers, and she forgave them, and they asked for forgiveness. And God began to heal her heart, and he stepped into the areas that were closed off, and the darkness that flooded her was filled with light, and Jesus began to heal her sexuality, her relationships with others, and her fears, but most importantly, her life. And this is what she wrote to us, um, and I wanted to share this specifically with you as a, a hope. She says, um, she says this, I'm now awake, and I know I'm God's beloved child, and nothing can ever change that. I want to be a part of God's kingdom and help others find their way back to God. I'm still working on my own fears of talking to people, but I know that my story can give people hope because it shows that God is almighty. And if he can save me, then he can save anybody, no matter what they've been through. Let me go to the next slide. But they cannot do it. This is what she says. But they cannot do it on their own. God is key. If I would not have had God to show me his love, I would have carried this pain with me my whole life. But he took all the pain to the cross so that I could live. I love Jesus, and I cannot thank him enough for saving my life. Can we give her a round of applause? From my courageous friend who wrote her story out of courage for everyone here, whether it's been abuse sexually, whether it's been an addiction, whether it's a broken marriage, how do we get back to what God intended? Number one in her letters, God is key. 
you got to let him in your life to allow this to be healed. Recognize, first of all, who you are. You aren't damaged goods. You, are, you aren't what happened to you in the past. You are who God says you are. And if you're confronted this morning with this great reality of the distance between your holiness and purity and, and that which God speaks of you, I want to remind you of the gospel. Paul, uh, what Peter is saying, he's saying, you are holy, so be holy. You are his treasured possession, so act like it. You are a royal priesthood, so be a royal priesthood. The response to the gospel is you are, so be it. Are you with me? So this morning, I thought, why don't we spend some time and invite ourselves to be open? I want to invite you to be open to God's blessing. And really what I thought symbolically we can do is come under the hoopah this morning. And we have some hoopahs around the room. We'll bring another one down here in a second. But I thought maybe we could allow some space for God to speak because he not only forgives us for our stuff in our past, but he brings restoration and he comes to restore. So I want to invite you this morning to great space. We're going to have our worship team come up and and sing to us and, and be a part of the worship experience. But maybe this could be a time where we can be real where we can let down our walls and we can stop hiding in front of each other. Some of you are married and you've lost the delight in your spouse. That the idea of of having a a deep, lasting relationship is on the back burner and and maybe standing under the hoopah is about just opening yourselves up to God and allowing him to restore your passion for the wife or spouse, spouse of your youth. Maybe you're here and you have allowed all sorts of things to enter into that exclusive relationship with the hoopah where you've allowed, uh, where marriage is exclusive and you've allowed pornography, you've allowed other relationships, you've allowed uh, uh, family members to interact with this relationship when it's doing damage to your bride, to your husband. Maybe stepping under the hoopah today is just reminding your spouse that I'm in it with you and this is you and me, babe. Maybe for some of you, sexuality is the biggest area of, of conflict. And brothers and sisters, I know how hard that is in marriage. That this is the conversation of shame and disappointment. And maybe this morning it's just about coming under the hoopah and remembering that God can shine light into the places of woundedness and pain. Maybe it's that your walls are up. And I remember talking about this a few few weeks ago where we talked about the walls that we build over time to protect ourselves. And maybe some of us have constructed fortresses over our hearts and we haven't allowed God, we haven't allowed our significant other, or maybe we're dating, we haven't allowed our, our, our dating partner to even enter into that intimate place in our hearts. And today, maybe it's just about opening ourselves up to God and letting him in. Maybe you're single and you feel hopelessly alone. And as I've had many conversations with single people in our church and you think there's no way you can stay pure. There's no way you can fight off the urges inside of you. Maybe this morning coming under the hoopah is just a cry for mercy on God to give you the strength to hold out and stay true to who you already are. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and you've blown it. Maybe coming under the hoopah together is a call for for purity. In the midst of brokenness, we're called to enter into the presence of God. We'll close with this. In the book of Joel, 
Joel announces judgment on the people of God. And he says that judgment will come through locusts, and locusts come throughout the land of Israel and destroy everything, destroys the crops, destroys their livelihood. And in the midst of devastation and destruction, Joel says over and over again, God can restore what the locusts have eaten away. God can restore what the locusts have eaten away. God can restore what's been taken away, what's been given away. He can restore your passion. He can restore your purity. He can restore your self-control. He can restore your hunger for righteousness. He can restore your self-image. He can restore your not damaged goods, your sons and daughters of the king. You're a special possession, a holy nation, and a royal priesthood. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.